Hello, Ernest. Hello, Ernest. Hello, Hello Ernest. No, oh, that never gets old. How are you doing? Yeah. Oh, been an interesting week. Um, so, um, I think the title for this episode is Against Hierarchy. And I've been thinking a lot about, so as I think I told you, I launched my little website, uh, Igwet. Mm-hmm. And as part of that, I put together a little manifesto. And the way that I'm kind of framing the challenge is the tension between networks and hierarchies. The, um, the short version of the argument is that the way humanity has managed to survive this long is, to, is by being more cohesive. So communities that are more cohesive where people trust each other and work in pro-social ways always outcompete those that are less cohesive. The challenge is that the best system we have found for maintaining cohesion is authoritative hierarchies. And hierarchies are really good at funneling information up and uh, instructions down, but they're uh, not well suited to rapidly changing environments. And they have all sorts of negative consequences. Uh, there was a book that came out, I'm not sure if I mentioned this to you, uh, the last week or so called CAST, C-A-F-T-E. Have you heard anything about this? No. So it's uh, uh, Oprah Winfrey, who I assume you've at least heard of her. She recommended it and bought like 500 copies to send to various thought leaders. And the lady, um, I forget the name of the author, Isabel something. Her basic thesis is that uh, racism as practiced in the U.S. is really part of a, of a more broad phenomena of casteism. And she compares it with the you know, canonical caste system of India, uh, but also to the uh, Nazi Germany, not great company. But it was a very powerful metaphor, which really has been troubling me the last couple of days. And you know, the, the, the interesting thing, we talk about you know, pro-social behavior at different scales. And one of the, the more terrifying things about caste is that the main engine of that is people wanting to secure a better life for their children. So if you're in a caste, your primary focus on making sure that you stay a good member of that caste and that your children conform to the ideals of that caste. And it's a uh, one consequence of that is that those in the upper caste are highly motivated to keep those in the lower caste down in their status, uh, even if unconsciously. So the the canonical example of of race in America is education. And the perverse thing about the way education exists in the U.S. is that it's a zero-sum elite game. There's only so many spots at Harvard, so many spots at elite universities, um, and therefore the entire education system turns into this massive sorting mechanism um, which people in higher castes know how to game. So, as we, well, the sad things we talk about. So, 
uh, it's very troubling as someone who went to a top school and has their children in expensive private schools. Uh, it's like, well, I mean, to be a good parent is defined in our current cultural context as giving our children every advantage. But then that begs the question, well, who are they getting advantages against? Because if it's a zero-sum game, the way education is, that means if they have an advantage, that other kids are a disadvantage. And so I am essentially perpetrating inequity by trying to help my children get ahead because it means they're getting ahead of others. And I have not fully emotionally processed all this yet, but the more interesting and maybe self-serving way of looking at this is this is an aspect of a hierarchy and that there are always fewer spots on top than there are at the bottom. And therefore, there's always power to be at the top. And in the olden days, you know, it's kind of funny. Nowadays, we think it ridiculous that just because a king was a good ruler, that his children should also be rulers, right? We, we would think that would be the height of insanity. And yet, just because a man is rich, we don't think it's unreasonable for their children to be rich. Or just because a man went to Harvard uh, for his children to go to Harvard. I mean, that's written into the rules of most of these elite institutions. Uh, is that they want to reinforce those behaviors. But if we want to create a more equitable society, uh, as you and I have been talking about, uh, it uh, arguably would require breaking some of those rules. And when you think about it, the I guess the spiritual component of it is the sense that, you know, does all that money actually make people any happier or wiser? And the evidence seems to suggest no. Uh, I have a friend, uh, Robert Crinsley, who worked with some of the big names of Silicon Valley uh, from the first generation, and their lives were a mess. You know, they built these beautiful companies that people really admired, uh, but their children, you know, hated them and had all these dysfunctional issues. And, you know, it, it's almost like there's this collective delusion, uh, which, you know, you can blame it on capitalism, but it goes back much farther than that, that, oh, yeah, we've got to envy those at the top and strive to be like them. But then you get there and you find those people are miserable. <laughs> you know, all that money and power doesn't actually buy happiness uh, any more than all the, you know, the wild sex and drugs in the movies do. But um, it certainly, it doesn't buy happiness, but it, it, uh, it, uh, it allows you to be distracted from the pain. And so the interesting spiritual quest is what's the alternative? And so the idea of a network where, um, I guess the alternative to focusing on advantages is focusing on capabilities. And that I want to get good at this. Um, and it doesn't really matter how good other people are or who's the best, uh, but this is the thing that I want to be good at. Good at. And so this idea of emergent decentralized networks keeps coming up. And the idea is that information and accountability flow back and forth, but autonomy clearly rests on the local individual or the local team. And so that's kind of where I'm pitching with Igwet is around that, is that this is a way to uh, instrumentize networks so they can coordinate more effectively without giving up autonomy. So anyway, the um, so I'm curious whether you buy the argument 
that the real problem with our systems is not capitalism um, per se, but these sorts of hierarchies that by definition create zero sum winners. What do you think? Mm -hmm. No, I, I wouldn't say that capitalism is blameless, but um, I understand. Uh, uh, so, I was yeah, and let me clear: so the, the, the capitalism as it is defined now includes hierarchy, right? The owners of capital get to control mm -hmm. the economy, and in these cases, and so I'm not saying that capitalism is blameless. I'm saying it's a uh, example of hierarchical systems where power flows to the top and allows the people at top to be unaccountable to those below. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying that's actually what's worst about the, 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 so the, the idea is that what's really wrong with capitalism is that because money is by definition a scarce resource, that it is a zero sum game at the top. Mm -hmm. And that's, it, not that capitalism is, is without guilt, but the, 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 the pitch I'm trying to make, or at least the theory I'm trying to test, is that the thing that we all hate about capitalism is its hierarchical nature. Uh, you, can't yeah. necessarily get it, you, you can't necessarily separate it from the hierarchy, but you know, if capitalism, let's, let's just do the counterfactual. Say we had a market economy, but um, uh, there's this wonderful Jewish tradition called uh, Jubilee, which I think we may have talked about before. A friend of mine just turned 50 years. Uh, but the idea is that every 50 years, they just reset all the property counters and all the wealth. Um, or, you know, and there were smaller resets every seven years. Like, what if we said every seven years, uh, we reshuffle the deck and we say, okay, all the institutions stay the same, but everyone gets um, randomly reallocated to a new position and then you have to start over again. If, ever, if everyone on top knew that they could end up in the bottom in seven years, uh, I think they would, be, they would behave differently. <clears throat> and in fact, that's the, uh, the Rawlsian hypothesis. Have you heard of Rawls? Rawls? Is a philosopher. Rawls, R-A-W-L-S. We're getting a lot Rawls, of nice yeah. juicy notes to, to put into the, uh, the show notes. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, but the idea that imagine a society where you didn't know what your role would be, how would you design that society? And that's kind of Rawlsian in fairness. Now, the interesting thing and the failure mode of that is most people would say, well, I'll design the society to reward virtue. And then they define virtue as whatever skill or habits of mind they themselves possess. So one could argue we are in a society which is Rawlsian based on your ability to play the game of education. And even though there's a weird sort of pseudo meritocracy to education, it's still heavily biased towards families, both explicitly in the case of like getting into Harvard or implicitly in the sense of people in my economic strata obsessing over being in good schools and getting good grades and learning how to play the game of school, which is only tangentially related to knowledge. So that's one of the challenges with Rawls is that the people who drop the system design it to reward their particular virtues and worse, excuse their particular sins. 
Um, so the so anyway the 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 and of course then to to, to you know even if there is a jubilee type reset uh, they find ways to sort of hide resources to go between them. The, the the pitch I'm making actually is not to try to create a revolution because revolutions generally just change the people in the hierarchy and not the hierarchies themselves. But to build this idea of an emergent network, and the idea of an emergent network is that there are it's not that there's no hierarchy, but it's what's sometimes called a heterarchy, where there are multiple layers and multiple domains, just like we have you know a, a tricameral series of governments. A system of government in the U.S. between the president, Congress, and the Supreme Court. Uh, an emergent network, like the internet, for example, has um, many different centers of authority, um, and there is a very low switching cost to change your, your authority between them. Just like open source in general, right? Uh, I'm sure someone's probably analyzed this way more than I have, but the dynamic nature of the internet where, you know, a different website is just a click away is very similar to how an open source, a different maintainer is just a fork away. And that low barrier to exit, there's a low physical barrier to exit, even though there may be higher emotional or value benefits exit is, is one of the reasons that the internet uh, enables permissionless innovation. Um, you know, without gatekeepers, which allow lots of bad things to flourish, but also allows lots of new things, which, uh, from the perspective of the status quo, are bad things. Have we discussed the phrase permissionless innovation yet? Oh, you still there? No. Yes. Okay, so the basic idea of the internet is before, is that you can set up a website um, and you don't actually need anyone's permission. I mean, you do need something to get a domain name, um, but very little because it's all, A, it's decentralized, so there's multiple players providing all these things, whether it's name services or other platforms. And it's in contrast to the way the world was before that. Whereas in order to get a storefront, for example, you have to go to the city and you have to spend a lot of money and you have to worry about building codes and housing codes and all these things. And similarly, if you wanted to publish something in a newspaper, you had to go through all these gatekeepers. So the deal with the internet, and this is very much baked into the fabric of the protocol, is that, look, any, is that we don't care who you are or what you do. As long as you obey these low-level protocols and don't flood the network, you can do whatever you want. And at different layers, there's different protocols that you sort of opt into from IP to TCP to HTTP, et cetera. Um, and then because of that, you know, when Apple introduced the iPhone, they didn't, they had to get FCC permission to get onto the, the phone networks, but they didn't have to ask anybody's permission to put it on the internet. As long as you have an IP address and a Mac address, you're good to go. And that was an extraordinary thing, uh, because in the, before there was this idea of an open decentralized network, like if you wanted to connect to AT&T, you had to talk to AT&T and they had very strict rules and they're not gonna let you do something that sabotages their monopoly uh, in the name of safety because subversion and innovation look identical to a hierarchical system, uh, even though they have very different 
intents and outcomes. And frankly, uh, you know, poorly done innovation is indistinguishable from sabotage, having been on both sides of that. So the idea is that with a decentralized network, there's a certain low-level protocol that you define, and that's what, uh, as long as people comply with that protocol, they can do whatever they want. And, you know, that was really an extraordinary thing. I mean, printing presses kind of had that same dynamic going, is that, or, um, that uh, you didn't really need to have a huge army of people like uh, a king or a pope to get your word out uh, is you could create a bunch of words on paper and then this network of printing presses uh, had both the freedom to print whatever they want, but also the economic incentive. Now that's the other thing that's interesting and a lot of people talk about this as the original sin of the internet is that there was no system of payments baked into the internet. And that's why we have spam. That's why we have advertising as the dominant model. And so there's a lot of hope, uh, misplaced or not, I'm not sure, that the blockchain would solve that internet, that uh, uh, original sin, that by allowing people to create protocols uh, that were self-funding, they could create this alignment of interest. Uh, I think we've discussed this before, but I'll just say it out there, is that I think it's almost right the problem is, is that you can't have a good blockchain without good governance. Uh, people have tried and it, you know, it, it has failed spectacularly in some cases. Is that you still need to have some governance to make sure that people follow the rules and to maintain the protocol. And I think we've kind of proved that empirically that the projects and the systems with the best governance outcompete those with, with, which say, oh, we'll just trust the blockchain because the blockchain, like all digital systems, can't correct itself. So the, uh, the idea that the technical model, the information flow, the information flows, the money flows, and the power flows all need to be in balance, I think is probably the interesting idea, which is why when we had our very first conversations about IGWET, which is probably almost a year ago now, um, um, yeah, probably, maybe maybe longer. I think it was raining, so that would have been like, I don't know. Do you remember when we first started having these conversations, Ernest? Yeah, it's like uh, the, uh, the end of uh, it's more than a year. Still there? Yeah. yeah, okay, anyway. So I said that the key innovation of IGWET is that it splits the difference between a membership fee and advertising with the idea of sponsorship. The idea is that people host communities and that anyone can host a community uh, and that anyone can run a server that could host multiple communities and that um, the, the hosts of the community are the people who pay the money into the system and that's the economic incentive. But the hope is the, the, the rules of the game of the system are you don't own your members. Uh, you know, that you may know who they are, but the members have the right to fork the community, which is, as far as I can tell, uh, very unusual. Because uh, generally speaking, in the name of privacy, um, you generally, uh, you know the names of people who post to the mailing list, 
but you don't know who all the lurkers are and you're not allowed to get a dump of everyone's email, uh, which is understandable because there is, uh, you know, huge privacy violating opportunities there, but you kind of implicitly trust whoever is the owner. And uh, the other interesting dynamic is, I think we also discussed zero trust architectures before, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. The whole idea that, you know, you know, the, the sworn samurai inside the castle all are completely trustworthy. And of course, the king who runs the castle is the most trustworthy of all. And everyone outside is the benighted heathen that we must defend against. And Silicon Valley's uh, adoption of zero trust authentication, which basically means we don't trust where you are. We only, zero trust is a bad name, but personalized trust levels is what enabled us to move away from VPNs and firewalls to working at home so rapidly is that's kind of the idea of the emergent network is you say, I don't have to trust the hierarchy, much less the person at the top of the hierarchy. I trust this person in this context. Like I trust this medical professional to give me good health advice. And I trust this financial counselor to give me good investment advice. And I trust my friend, the policy wonk to give me good advice about uh, governance, government, but they don't get to force me to accept the other as a bundle the way current political parties do, uh, where all these things get bundled together into a a very rigid tribal identity. Mm -hmm. And you can have tribes, but tribes are, let's call them soft tribes rather than the hard tribes, in that, you know, if it's a community of practice and you want to learn that thing, you know, you submit to the, the discipline of that tribe to build up your yoga skills or, or whatever. But because there is this right to fork, if you say, well, this guy is really good, but I don't like the way he treats women, I can take all the best practices and the ideas and the membership and say, hey, let's go over here and create something that's a little bit more uh, transparent and accountable to make sure we're not abusing members. Um, and everyone has the right to do that. It's, it's very similar in some ways to Clay Shirky's idea of ad hocracy or woofy uh, in the Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom. The problem with ad hocracy is that it, it tended to work best when there was no violence or where violence didn't matter because everyone had backup and restore of their personalities. Um, and that was the, the trope he used to avoid that problem. Um, and, you know, I actually don't have a problem with geographical hierarchies for physical assets in that you want to, you know, it makes sense that you have the idea of a city and a county and a state and a nation uh, as a way to oversee physical stuff. What I object to is that they become the only hierarchy and we're not looking at, we don't have a multiplicity of other hierarchies and heterarchies and decentralized networks for solving other problems. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's not that, my son is paging me for a second. Internet? I did nothing to the internet. Nope, all right. Um, that the, um, you know, nation states were a thing created by the printing press, right? We just had, we've had that discussion, haven't we? No, that nation okay, so, but, uh, by the, the printing press. Yeah, so uh, I think Ben Thompson on Strategy has talked about this 
the most, although it's a fairly common trope. Uh, the basic point is that for you know, almost a thousand years, Europe was ruled over by the Catholic Church, the first estate. And that was the common infrastructure that bound everyone together uh, through religion and churches and the Pope. And then uh, you basically had city-states. Each town was its own polity, and you'd have a duke or a king or whatever who would rule over um, you know, this particular area. But the idea of a nation had nothing to do with politics. It was about culture. The word nation is closer to our word ethne or ethnic group. And so people would have a shared culture, but all their rules and regulations were dictated by their local lord or by the universal church that, that had certain standards and, and practices uh, that, that everyone, ruler and ruled alike, kind of uh, adhered to. And what happened was with the printing press, uh, you had the same economics you have in the internet, which is that there's a high fixed cost both to build the press in the first place, but also to typeset any given document. And so once you've typeset a document once, you have an economic incentive to sell that document to as many people as possible. So what that means then is that uh, it, the, 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 the clever business move is to say, well, I'm gonna to go to the biggest center, like say Berlin in Germany, and I'm gonna print it in the dialect that the, that the Berliners use, and then I'm gonna sell that same uh, document, whether it's Luther's 95 Theses or a recipe book, to all the other German-speaking towns. And slowly over a process of decades uh, and even centuries, it ended up standardizing what used to be a loosely related collection of dialects into a mother tongue, into a single language that everyone spoke. And it also created these sharp boundaries uh, between, you know, uh, say, um, you know, German speaking and uh, Scandinavian languages, which are related, but there was enough of a gap geographically and linguistically that you sort of created these groupings around certain languages. And those languages then in the series of revolutions uh, and fractures following the Reformation became independent nation states. And that's where the word nation state came as opposed to city state. Uh, it also highlights how bizarre the American experiment is in that it, we're not, we aren't really a nation in the traditional sense of the word. Um, and, and, we, and we totally abuse the word state <laughs> in the way we organize our federal union. But, but the interesting point is that, is that there was this economic incentive to standardize on language that created a common information architecture where everyone was reading the same books, having the same argument. Um, and that created a sense of identity and consciousness that gave rise to a desire for political unity as, just, as like, well, hey, we're all Germans. We all understand each other. We have a common heritage, common myths, common traditions. We are something that other people are not, and we want that to be recognized. And that was really good in the uh, 18th century and uh, pretty good in the 19th century and really, really awful in the 20th century. Um, so that is the, uh, so that's basically the thesis that the nation state as we understand it arose out of standardization of language, which was driven by the economics of the printing press, which strongly suggests 
that the nation state as we know it is on the way out because <laughs> the uh, you know especially with Google Translate and uh, GPT three or whatever radically changing the economics of translation. Uh, we're not that far from a world, and there are people who already live in this world, where they can get equal amounts of information from English-speaking sources and non-English-speaking sources. Uh, and that changes how you view things. And also the fact that, you know, on you know, TikTok, people from around the world who don't speak the same language uh, can sing the same songs and interact with each other in anything. And of course, never mind all the political issues around TikTok's ownership by China and interference in local affairs. Um, you know, the fact that we're moving to a, uh, a culture-based, I mean, Gangnam Style, the, this Korean pop song that you know, my kids were singing and doing parodies of when they were five years old, right? That is an example of a media thing that transcended language. Uh, but for the longest mm -hmm. time, language was what bound us together as a people, and now it's not. So it gets back to our earlier point that everything really comes down to information architecture, in that what if people have a shared understanding of something, you have a cohesive group who can act together in pro-social ways, where if you can't understand each other, then there's no, it, it's, 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 it's extremely, if you don't understand each other, it's impossible to coordinate action. And if you don't speak the same language, it's quite challenging to gain an understanding. Uh, it's easier now than it ever was, where you can have music and imagery, um, and that changes things. Um, but we're not quite sure how much and in which dimensions. So that's the that's the pitch: is that we're living in a world where our existing institutions are hierarchical like the nation states and empires that preceded them. And they, uh, they literally uh, are built upon the premise that you could have a rigid hierarchy where people are in or out. And that adherence to the top was more important than um, responsiveness to the bottom. And you know, to give the devil his due, uh, COVID-19 has emphasized the value of those hierarchies, right? Autocratic Asian governments, whether liberal or communistic, uh, have done way better at controlling the pandemic than the uh, fragmented chaos that is the United States. And so it's not a thing where we want to get rid of hierarchies per se, what I would, what the opportunity before is because, precisely because it's, and it's a much better opportunity now because all those hierarchies are just swamps because uh, they don't deal well with rapidly changing environments, is to start building out the alternative reality of saying, you know, hey, I mean, literally in my friends at the Great Reset, my other podcast, um, you know, most people are not able to attend church in any meaningful way. And so rather than criticizing church, as I've been known to do on occasion, I say, look, uh, while we're waiting for the church to get us back together and things to go back to normal, why don't we start meeting together in these informal ad hoc networks and start connecting together and sharing and maybe, you know, having small scale physical meetups, which are safer. And then the theory is that it will allow us to solve certain problems that hierarchies are really bad at, such as authenticity and intimacy. Um, and then 
there's no reason why the first order, they can't coexist with the hierarchy, uh, just as the original nation states, or sorry, the original nations coexisted within the hegemony of the Catholic Church until the point where the reform, when the, uh, the hypocrisy gap between what the church said and what the church did got too big. And when Luther called them on it, at first uh, the, the church kind of went along with it because it's going to seem reasonable and fair. But then someone higher up realized, wait, if we allow this precedent of this guy to disagree with us in this area and criticize us for these behaviors, the whole system could come toppling down. We have to get rid of him. Then they reverse course, persecuted Luther, and then Luther, uh, for better and worse, uh, embraced the nation states, the German princes, and they adopted him for their own reasons, and he adopted them for his, which did some wonderful things and some horrible things. I mean, Luther, uh, we Lutherans, I grew up as a Lutheran, uh, we don't like to talk about it, but Lutheran basically invented, Luther invented anti-Semitism. Uh, he kind of wrote the fundamental treatise about how the Jews are responsible for all the world's problems. And, you know, that had played out really, really badly in German history. And so the point is that these things are, are not without risk. And the best you can hope for is that rather than having hierarchies where we focus on our leaders, obeying our leaders rather than critiquing them, we create these sort of webs of accountability in our networks, uh, which is why I spend so much time talking about my failure modes and what I'm confused by and where I'm worried I'm going wrong and the horrible damage I might end up doing. Uh, because that is how you build a network that is more resilient than any one individual. You know, in a hierarchy, you choose the best person and you want to make sure everyone's at least as good as that. You know, uh, and you know, you know, if uh, Anthony Fauci, I guess the, the name of the scientist, if he had been in charge of the U.S. response, that would have been a good thing. Like having in a crisis, having the one person who knows the best about what to do and telling everyone else to just shut up and follow is clearly the right thing to do. The problem is, is if the crisis changes and that person is the wrong person, then you're screwed. And so that's why you need to have adaptive networks which can voluntarily say, I mean, that's what you see happening throughout the pandemic is all these ad hoc networks saying, you know, hey, there's a food crisis here. There's an education crisis here. There's a humanitarian crisis there. And people tapping into their existing relational networks to solve the problem immediately. And that's great. Um, and, but they all know that they're ad hoc transient things. You know, they're just kind of filling gaps until government steps in which what and if government will step in is now a much more poignant question than it was six months ago. So um, anyway, the, the, the action item is I have finally shifted from talking to action and that I've actually launched my website. It doesn't do much yet. Uh, it's got mm -hmm. one long rambling essay there. Um, one useful thing to do uh, if you have the time and inclination is to uh, read through that essay and maybe next week we can argue about it, what you liked and didn't like. Uh, I wouldn't go into detailed copy editing yet, uh, but more just talking about like, does this make sense? Uh, do you agree with it? Um, I, you know, I'm gonna go out on a limb and say like, this is my pitch for how to save civilization. 
is that we build these ad hoc decentralized distributed networks built around relational practices. And that that is what allows us to create a new pro-social status game that scales from individuals up to uh, whole earth transformation, which is a grandiose phrase that I pulled out because it matches the last three letters of the five letter domain name I, I bought uh, you know, five years ago, Igwen. Um, but in some sense it's true. Uh, we were talking about this in a previous podcast on the Great Reset about how you know, the Catholic Church did a lot for unity, um, but at the price of having a very uh, harsh standard for outsiders. Because in a hierarchy, you have to have a harsh punishment for being outside so that people are willing to put up with the inconveniences of being on the inside. And so it's a good shortcut to unity, but it comes at a high price. And if we're going to get beyond that, then we need something that is boundaryless. It's not that there's people who are inside or outside, there's different status games. And there's a platform which allows multiple status games to compete with each other. <clears throat> and that's the way that you get uh, mimetic pro-social behavior without a hierarchy. At least that's the theory. Okay. And it sort of works on the internet today, which you can consider kind of uh, the, the 1.0 version of a global decentralized network. Uh, the problem, of course, is that A, it doesn't really distinguish between pro-social and anti-social behavior. It uses the proxy of what do people want, which uh, works up to a point and then goes really bad. Um, and it has no intrinsic payment architecture uh, so that we default to uh, advertising and surveillance capitalism. So hope is if we can solve the business model and the status game problem then we can sort of help the internet grow up. Let's call it web 3.0 maybe if you want, or but not even web. It really is the internet because the goal is to get away from websites and back to chat as the primary means of interaction. Because uh, chat is the one thing that advertisers aren't able to monetize, interestingly enough. Well, that's not true. WeChat is able to monetize it because they have the directory uh, and the front end of the app. But at least in the West, you know, group chats, you know, WeChat, iMessage, SMS, et cetera, are the sort of the most intimate thing where we don't really, in fact, we kind of demand people don't spy on it. And uh, so I think last week the, 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 the mantra was that technical documentation saves civilization. And this case, the question is whether decentralized messaging can save civilization or at least save authentic community uh, in a way that will let those save civilization and not destroy each other. All right, I rambled even more than usual. Did you have anything you wanted to say or you want to just wait and read my article and then we'll take it up from there? Read the article. All right. Well, thank you. All right, thanks for listening, Ernest. And uh, we'll pick this up next week. Okay, thank you for sharing, Ernest. All right, thank you for listening, Ernest. Bye-bye.